start this morning actually with an illustration. And the illustration includes my image. I've been using an image each week now for quite a while. And uh, my illustration includes my image. And I want you to think with me for a moment about going out and doing a little bird watching. Now, we have a clock in our family room on the wall that every hour on the hour, the little hand points to a picture of a different bird. There are 12 types of birds on that clock. And as it points to those birds on the hour, instead of chimes or some of the things that other clocks do, you hear the particular call, the particular sounds that that type of bird makes. That is, if you listen closely. After the clock's been on the wall for a while, you don't even, oh, were there birds? You don't even hear them after a while, unless you're standing right by it, because it gets to be something that becomes routine, I guess, I don't know. But, and, and by the way, it is powered by a, a photo light cell, so that at nighttime, during the darkness, it doesn't have bird calls going all night long. Uh, but uh, I, I want you to imagine yourself for a moment picking up a pair of binoculars and then setting out looking to spot a few of our feathered friends. Now, I don't need to use binoculars because each year my wife cares for me enough that she puts a hummingbird feeder close outside the window where I Sit. It used to be outside the window where my desk was, but now it's outside the window in the living room where I sit. And I just love to watch hummingbirds, particularly. But you've got your binoculars, and you're looking toward the trees, and you see one of Pat's favorites. You see a robin. Now, how do you know it's a robin? Well, you know it's a robin by its distinctive reddish-orange color of its breast. And then you see a blue-colored bird, but you know it's not a blue jay, because the reason why you know it's not a blue jay and it's actually an eastern blue bird is because it doesn't have the distinguishing marks of a blue jay. It doesn't have that prominent crest. It doesn't have that black, bold necklace. Now the point here is really a pretty simple one. Birds are known by their distinguishing marks. That's how you can tell one breed from another. And interestingly, we had this conversation with my daughter-in-law on the phone. And by the way, you know, to say a little prayer real quick for Eric. He's preaching again this morning. But uh, we shared with, I shared with my daughter-in-law because she was talking about, my wife said something about being pretty. And I said, I said, you know, it's the male of the species that's the one that's so pretty. You know, it's the lion that has the beautiful mane. 
It's the male of the peacock that has the big plumage. Uh, it's the male pheasant that, you know, the female pheasants, you see, you've seen them, they're just kind of gray and, and damp. Uh, but uh, particular markings. So here's my question for you today. I want you to consider with me, because in the first part of this second chapter, Paul has placed a lot of emphasis on our works. What identifiable markings are there for a true believer? What visible signs? One of the songs that we used to sing a lot when I was in college was often referred to, I don't know if it was actually the name or not, but I, I, people would say, once you sing that song, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Okay. We always need to make sure that we understand Paul's main emphasis that's very important because it keeps us from proof texting. And it's clearly seen here in Romans in his turning from the world of shameless immorality that he describes in chapter 1, verses 18 to the end, verse 32, as he moves from that to the world of self-conscious moralism. And in the first 17 verses of chapter 2, the theme has been that the judgment of God is upon self-appointed judges. We often think that we're better because we're not practicing the gross immorality that they're practicing. And we point our fingers as if somehow we are a part of the spiritually elite. And we even have disparaging names for some of those people. And I've stressed that Paul's call is not to suspend our critical faculties. He's not calling us to renounce any negatively discerning thoughts that we might have, as if all criticism and all rebuke of others was illegitimate. Rather, what he's calling us to is He's prohibiting us from standing in judgment on other people to condemn them. Which we as humans have no right to do. But especially when we fail to condemn ourselves, we're not called to condone wrong behavior. But neither are we called to condemn them. Scripturally, we're called to confront. And we're to do it in love. I have known personally a few very, what I would consider, very good Christian men who drove people away from the church because they didn't know how to confront wrong behavior in a loving way. They were very judgmental, very critical. And I had people say to me, I'll never go to church there as long as that person's there. 
They don't see their own faults, but they see everybody else's. So, what then is the standard? What are the identifiable markings of a true believer? And I believe that in our text for today, Paul does talk about some marks. And you don't even have to read between the lines to see what these marks of a true believer are. Sometimes, however, it's helpful when you're defining something to first define what it is not. And I think that actually that's precisely what Paul is doing here. He begins by describing what the unmarks of a believer are. And to bring it into our terminology, Paul is saying that true belief is not defined by our membership on a church roll. It's not defined by our rituals. I was sharing with Kay a conversation that I had about another minister who said to me, oh, I don't go to ministers' meetings if there's guys there that aren't a part of the Christian churches and Church of Christ. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever had a class on the history of the independent Christian churches and Church of Christ. But one of the founding pleas of the men who decided it was time to get out of the denominations, one of the founding pleas is, we are not the only Christians, but Christians only. The idea that we wouldn't use a different name, we would only use the name Christian, but recognizing we're not the only Christians. And I said to Kay in that conversation, I said, you know, I didn't even... Try. I didn't even attempt. But a lot of times with younger guys just coming into the ministry who I hear that attitude in, I'll say, are you perfect? And hopefully they'll admit that they're not. And when they admit that they're not perfect, then I ask them, what do you think that you are possibly teaching regarding the Bible that might not be accurate? You see, we're human, aren't we? I hope that what I am teaching you is exactly what was intended by the apostles and by the other writers. But I also know that there is a very good chance that because of my books, because of the way I was brought up, I might be seeing things in a way that others don't see and they might actually be more accurate than I am. And if you disagree with me at some point over how I am interpreting the Word, by all means, come to me one-on-one. -on -one. Don't go running around and talk to other people first. That's not biblical. It's not scriptural. It's sinful, actually. Come to me one-on-one -on -one and say, you said this about this passage, and I don't understand it that way. And we can discuss it. And if you can show me and convince me that I've been wrong, I'll be the first one the next Sunday to get up and say, by the way, it was brought to my attention, and I'll, I'll correct it. We're not saved by membership on a church roll. 
And I hear people all the time when you say, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm a member of such and such a church. Well, good. That's not what I asked you, though. Are you a Christian? Well, yeah. Yeah, I, I was baptized by immersion. That's not what I asked you. Are you a Christian? Because there are a lot of people who have been baptized by immersion who went in dry centers and came out wet centers and they never changed the way they were living. There's no indication that they're believers. There's no scriptural indication that they're believers just because they went through that ritual. Remember how 1 Corinthians, I think it's 10, begins? Paul starts that paragraph by saying, you know, the Israelites passed through the sea. And they had their spiritual food and their spiritual drink. What he was saying was, is they were baptized in the Red Sea. They had a communion of such in which it even said that the rock that they drank from was Christ. They had their baptism. They had their communion. But God was not pleased with them. For one reason, they were grumblers. It's right there in the Scripture. Go read it. They grumbled. My dad used to sing a little song. Oh, they grumble on Sunday, grumble on Monday, grumble on Tuesday too, grumble on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, grumble the whole week through. That's how some people are. Grumblers. And that's not the mark of a true Christian, scripturally speaking. Another way to look at the issue is in terms of what we possess and what we proclaim. And if you go back sometime this week and read Judges 13, I think it's an interesting chapter if you don't get caught up in some of the particulars, but look at the big picture. It's a, a really good chapter about how in this life there are things that you and I have been promised, but yet we haven't crossed the river yet. It's a reality. It's a promise. And as long as we do what needs to be done, we're going to gain that promise. But interestingly, who didn't cross the river and gain the promise? Moses. Moses. Because of some of his behavior, God said, you're not going to get to cross over. The great lawgiver. The one who saw God in the burning bush. And in Judges 13, Israel's inheritance of the promised land provides us with a physical representation of the already and the not yet. If you've trusted in Christ, then you have received the gift of salvation and the promise of eternal life. And you will take possession of that eternal life once you cross from this life into the next. It's already yours, but yet in many ways it's not yet in your possession. And this is reality. 
that we live in the tension of the already and the not yet. And as I shared with you, I think last week or the week before, how scripturally Paul uses as an illustration the whole issue of a will. With a will. What's in that will is yours. But how do you gain possession of it? You show that you have met the conditions. And you might not think the conditions are fair, but that doesn't matter. If that person was in sound mind when they made that will, those conditions have to be met for you to receive your portion of that will. And we saw in verse 6 how Paul reminded his readers that God will render to each one according to his works. Yeah? Paul's already proclaimed that salvation is by faith alone. Back in chapter 1 verse 16 he emphasizes that the righteous will live by faith or faithfulness better translated. And Paul's not contradicting himself. What he's affirming is that although justification is indeed by faith, judgment will be according to our works, how well we are doing with the sanctification part. What does Paul say? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Please listen carefully. The presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works, works of love in our lives. When Jesus was asked what he believed to be the greatest commandment, he responded with the great Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. But you can't see a lot of that, can you? And so he continued by affirming the best way to show our love for God by quoting a Leviticus 19.18 and a second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Our love for God is not demonstrated by our words. It's demonstrated by our actions. Claiming that salvation cannot be earned, many people are quick to proclaim that it's all about believing. And they quote John 3.16 every time they speak about salvation. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And they'll say, see it didn't say anything about baptism, did it? I guess they've forgotten to read the book of Acts. And maybe they've forgotten to read on. Because in verses 17, he goes on and talks about how Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. And then, I love this. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that whosoever believes. 1 John 3.16-18. to 18. By this we know love. 
that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And John continues a little bit further down in verses 23 and 24. And he says, And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another just as He commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. Again, the presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of of good works of love in our lives. So let's see what Paul has for us today. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach or proclaim against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor high idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. May God add His blessing to our reading of the Word. Did you see the if-then structure of the passage? But if you, you then who? And one commentator has pointed out that in the first four verses of our text, Paul uses eight verbs that all point to self-consciousness, self-confidence of those who claimed to be children of promise, the Jews. In fact, in these eight but if you statements, Paul has given a straightforward account of the double relation the Jewish people should have seen that they had to the law. Being instructed, they instruct. Being taught, they teach. But notice how Paul is turning the tables on them. 
They're not living up to the knowledge they possess. Which points back to verse 13 where Paul affirms that the doers of the law are those who will be justified. You've heard me say it many times. And, and it's scriptural. It doesn't matter a hoot what you believe in your head if you're not showing by your lives the reality that you believe that to be true. You see, the problem was they weren't practicing what they were proclaiming. They may have possessed the right words, but that wasn't sufficient. And so Paul notes, first of all, that they called themselves Jews, being proud of their honorable name as the chosen people. You don't know somebody, do you, who calls themselves a Christian? But their life doesn't have any indication or sign that they're a Christian? That you never see them anywhere worshiping? Being together with the body of Christ? This is a tough one. Because I have family members who say they're Christians. They never go to church anywhere. I don't know why they think they're going to want to be in heaven with Christians. They don't want to be with them on earth. Second, he reminds them that they relied on the law given to them at Sinai. You see, they were trusting in their possession of it as a shield against disaster. And I know some people... Well, let me say this. I believe with all my heart that the Bible is the Word of God. But I don't worship the Bible. I worship what the Bible points me to. And there is a difference. They relied on the fact that they had the law. Third, he says, you boast about your relationship with God. And the Greek phrase that he uses is identical with the climax of Paul's portrayal of Christians who have been justified by faith, which he'll discuss later in chapter 5, namely that they rejoice in God, chapter 5, verse 11. And those of you who by chance have the NIV this morning, I think it's accurate, although it's not a literal translation, it's accurate for the, for the NIV translation to elaborate on the fact that this pride was in their monotheism and their supposed monopoly of God. Fourth, Paul says, you know His will. Literally, you know the will to which all other wills are relative. And fifth, he reminds them, you approve what is excellent. And again, here as in first in Philippians chapter 1 verse 10, Paul uses the same expression and, and it can mean either you test things which are different or having done so, you approve those things which the test has shown to be valid. Remember at one point, Jesus said to the people, you listen to the rabbis and the teachers because what they're teaching is right. They're just not living that way. Don't do what they're doing. 
The sixth verb that he uses, uh, the reason for their moral discernment is that they are instructed from or by the law. And a further consequence of the instruction and discernment is the seventh verb, you're sure, you're convinced that you're competent to teach others. You see yourself as a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in darkness. You see, that's what they were supposed to be as Gentiles. That's what Abraham had said the chosen people that he would father would be. They were chosen for a responsibility. Not chosen as a blessing. All of this because his final verb is you possess in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. What a litany of actions based on various things that they rightly possessed but were they doing them? No. And now we see how Paul actually highlights their inconsistency. Or as we often hear, their hypocrisy. He uses five rhetorical questions. The answer is understood. The first is pretty general. You then who teach others, do you teach yourselves? And he gives three following questions dealing with particular sins. You proclaim, you preach against stealing, but do you steal? You say that people shouldn't commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? And I'm sure he had in mind how Jesus had redefined that so that it wasn't just the physical thing. It was the lusting that became adulterous. And those relationships outside of marriage are so damaging. So damaging. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And you know what? That was going on. Because they were justifying what they were doing by saying, well, those are, those are false religions. Those are pagan. So we're actually just stealing from something that's satanic and using it for good. Actually, Josephus, the historian, tells of just such a scandal. I think Paul, though, is more likely to actually have the actual robbing of pagan temples in mind because those people recoiled from idolatry and, ho and horror. There's a, there's a Jewish rabbi who lived at the same time that Paul did, Rabbi Johanan ben Zakkai. And he bewailed the fact that his Jewish people in among his Jewish people, the believers, there was increase of murder, adultery, sexual vice, commercial and judicial corruption, bitter sectarian strife, and other evils. He's saying almost what Paul is saying here to the Christians at Rome. And that brings me to the fifth and final rhetorical question. Though in our English Standard Version, it's kind of made into a statement. And it's once again more general. You who boast or brag about the law, which Jews did. That's what verse 17 was all about. Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? 
And Paul follows this with a quotation that seems to combine Isaiah 52 and Ezekiel 36. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In both Isaiah and Ezekiel, God's name had been mocked because His people had been defeated and enslaved. And you can almost hear them saying, Whoa. Isn't God able to protect His own people? Where was God when you lost your mate? When your child was struggling? Where's God if He's so good? Those are contemporary ways of doing exactly what Paul's talking about. And the point that Paul is making is that our moral defeat, just like a military defeat, brings discredit on the name of God. When we sin, we're debasing the image of God that is a part of who we were created to be. And the argument of verses 17 to 24 is the same in principle as that of verses 1 to 3 and just as applicable to us as to the first century critical moralizers and self-confident Jews. If we judge others... We should be able to judge ourselves. If we teach others, we should be able to live up to that instruction that we're teaching. If we raise our snooty noses and point our fingers, if we set ourselves up as either teachers or judges of others, we have no excuse if we don't do what we're teaching and judging. We don't even have the ability to plead ignorance. So if the Jews' possession and the knowledge of the law did not exempt them from the judgment of God, neither did their circumcision. And to be sure, circumcision was a God-given seal and sign of His covenant with them. It was a visible marker. But it wasn't a magical ceremony or a charm. It didn't provide them with permanent insurance covering against the wrath of God. It wasn't eternal fire insurance. I know several people that their total understanding of salvation is being saved from going to hell. All seen in a negative way. Not the glory of being with God, not the glory of praising, but just saved from the fire. Some kind of fire insurance. And circumcision was no substitute for obedience. It constituted a commitment to obedience. And that's why Paul counters the argument of the Jews who almost had superstitious confidence in the saving power of their circumcision that circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. Verse 25. He isn't denying the divine origin He's not saying it's not something that needs to be done. It's not salvation by obedience, but it's obedience as evidence of salvation. And the corollary is is that Jews are just as much exposed to to the judgment of God as are Gentiles. Now, hear me out, because I'm about to end. The real Christian like the real Jew, is one inwardly. 
And the true baptism, like the true circumcision, is in the heart and by the Spirit. But as many try to say, it's not the case that the inward and spiritual somehow replaces the outward and the physical. Rather, the visible sign, our baptism, our immersion into the grave of water, which the book of Acts clearly indicates as essential. Every single one of the conversion accounts in the book of Acts, they went immediately. Whether it was late at night, whether it was after going three days without eating, Paul, didn't, Paul hadn't eaten for three days and he wanted to be baptized before he worried about getting something to eat. The jailer, Philippian jailer, late at night, they washed the wounds and went and got baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch, here is much water. What's going to hinder me from being baptized? And incidentally, it was, here is much water. And they went down into the water and came up out of the water. Why? Because baptism in biblical times was only by immersion. It wasn't sprinkling and pouring. It was being buried with Christ and rising to walk in newness of life. What's on the inside doesn't replace the need for what needs to be done on the outside. But what's on the outside is of no value if the inside is not also changed. And so it is on the day of Pentecost when the crowd said to Peter, and there are the rest of the apostles, by the way, brothers, what shall we do? And notice that the question and Peter's reply both emphasize action, behavior, not just beliefs. They didn't say, well, Here's some things in this Old Testament. Go home, study them, memorize them, be able to take a test and you'll be okay. It's not just what we believe in our heads. We're told that Peter's response was repent and be baptized. And to those of my friends who don't believe that baptism is important, I say, but did you notice it doesn't say anything about confession? It doesn't say anything about believing. We have to take the Bible as a whole. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But don't stop reading at verse 38 because the proclamation of verse 39 includes us. We too possess the promise for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off Everyone who the Lord our God calls to Himself. So here's my challenge. Once again, in the form of a question. Our eight verbs are definitely going to be different. And our rhetorical questions might have to be rewarded. Reworded. But when we proclaim to others what we possess... Is the praise we seek from humans or from God? Are our words and our actions a part of our obedience to the commands and our love for God or are we trying to impress others by what we're saying and what we're doing? Don't tell me you're a member of a church. Show me. Don't tell me you're a Christian. 
Show me. Because you see what? Here, here, here's what it all wraps up to. I, I posted this this week. It's not your opinions that change people. It's your behavior. Let's pray.